This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Now, after the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote interviews with many authors. Now, sound quality might be slightly different than our previous podcasts, but they still contain the same great content that you've come to expect. Today, our guest is forensic anthropologist, television producer, and author Kathy Reichs. We spoke with her via Zoom in June of 2020 about her newest book, A Conspiracy of Bones, by publisher Scribner Books. The 12 seasons of the TV show Bones was produced by Kathy Reichs, and the title character Temperance Brennan is loosely based on Kathy's life as a practicing forensic anthropologist. When Kathy started writing the character of Temperance 20 books ago, she was able to bring her experience to the page and make the reader's experience very authentic. But writing the books changed how she worked in forensics a little bit, too. As a scientist, you're trained to be very observant on whatever it is your particular piece of the puzzle is. With me, it's the victim, him or her. But now I also observe detail I might not have noted before, like what does a fly sound like when it's buzzing in the autopsy room? Or what is the components of that smell of a decomposed body? So those kinds of things, I'm either more observant or I'm thinking, well, how would you describe it much more than I used to? And we'll get into detail about how she details her written work and learn about how she's remained a prolific writer while working for TV and being an academic. Kathy Reichs is our guest on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Paul Shankman. Kathy Reichs, thanks very much for joining us. Really enjoyed the book. Now, the book is The Conspiracy of Bones, and uh, Temperance Brennan, the main character in the book, Tempe, <laughs> uh, is a forensic anthropologist. You are a forensic anthropologist. What a remarkable coincidence. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? We found each other. <laughs> what is a forensic anthropologist? Because oh. people probably think it may be like a medical examiner, but it's not the same thing. No, but we work for medical examiners and coroners and law enforcement. And um, we're physical anthropologists with a specialty in the human skeleton and additional training um, such that we can identify human remains. We can help in coming up with a pro, if it's a completely unknown set of remains, we tell the police the age, the sex, the race, the height, all those factors so they can try to get the person identified. The other thing we do is we address cause of death. And we work on bodies that can't have a normal autopsy because they're burned or mutilated or mummified or decomposed or dismembered or just bones. So uh, we help with ID and we help with cause of death. Sometimes we answer questions about, well, what happened to the body after the person was dead? Is there anything that the bones can't tell you? Oh, there are a lot of things they can't tell us. For example, if cause of death was by poisoning, we're not going to see that, or smothering. Unless there's a fractured bone, we're not going to see that. It's got to be something that leaves its mark 
on the bones or teeth. Well, there are some graphic details in the book. I don't think it gives too much away to say that it basically starts out with the remains of somebody who has no face. That's it. It's got no face, no hands, no teeth. So the body can't be identified by dental records. It can't be identified visually. Uh, it can't be identified by fingerprints. So it's a typical case for a forensic anthropologist. And yet in this book, Tempe is, is on the outs. She's been exiled because there's a new boss in the Mecklenburg County, the Charlotte Medical Examiner Office, and this new boss can't stand her and will not call her in to work on anything. So Tempe's kind of having to go rogue. Well, she's totally having to go rogue in this book, and that, that's new for her. Is it new for you, too, in the sense that you never had to actually go rogue on your own? I would not. Yeah, I don't do some of the things our heroine does. I don't go out and dig up bodies by myself. Now, the cases that you profile in the books that you've written, which are fiction, are based, I guess, largely on actual cases that you've actually handled as a forensic anthropologist. How much of, of those actual cases are in the book as opposed to what you've added on for the purposes of fiction? It varies from book to book, but it's always based on something I've done. Sometimes it's a, a case, a specific case. And when I do that, like the first book, Deja Dead, is based on a serial murder case I worked on in Montreal. Um, I'll take a, a nugget, a core idea from the case. For example, um, in that case, there was a dismemberment of one of the victims, and I was asked to see if I could find out what kind of tool was used, which I could not because it was a straight edge knife. But what was interesting was the manner in which the perpetrator had gone about doing uh, the dismemberment. So I took that idea and then I asked myself, okay, well, what if this and what if that and what if that? And then I spin it off into fiction. And this is still work that you're doing to this day. Not so much. Um, I did all of the work for, for the province of Quebec at the uh, the main medical legal uh, lab there for, well, I'm not going to tell you how long. <laughs> it's in decades, <laughs> let's put it that way. But there came a point when I was writing a Temperance Brennan book every year. I was writing a young adult book every year, and I was writing a screenplay for the TV series. So something had to give. So I eased out of doing forensic work pretty much. I'm still available if they really need me, but um, I'm not doing it on a full-time basis. When you write up your reports on a real case, have you become more flowery as you write them now that you're a fiction writer? You know, I don't think I, it enters into my writing the cases, but it enters into my observation because normally as a scientist, you're trained to be very observant on whatever it is your particular piece of the puzzle is. With me, it's the victim, him or her self. So I'm very attuned to observing detail. But now I also observe detail I might not have noted before, like what does a fly sound like when it's buzzing in the autopsy room? Or what is the, the components of that smell of a decomposed body? So those kinds of things, I'm either more observant or I'm thinking, well, how would you describe it much more than I used to? Well, yeah. and you know, the book gets into a lot, well, the name of the book, Conspiracy of Bones, gets into a lot of things about conspiracy theories. Were you trying to kind of tap into the zeitgeist that seems to be going around today? Absolutely. And that's the theme of the book on two levels. On the broad level is how does the average person sort through all of the information and disinformation that's out there? Because anybody can start a blog or a website or get on the radio and internet and say whatever they want. So how do you sort through what's real and what's not real? 
And uh, it's not just coming from, you know, wingnut crackpots. Part of it's coming from people in authority, so especially down our way. So how do you sort through all that? And that's also what's happening with Tempe in this book on a personal level, because she's got some health issues. And for the first time in her life, she is having to question her own perceptive abilities. How much can she rely on herself? And that's really new to her. And at one point in the story, there's a fire and she loses all her physical evidence, her, her laptop computer, her photograph, all of that. And the only thing she has is what's in her head. And can she rely on it? So what's real and what isn't? So that's the theme on, on both those levels. Well, hopefully her, her health issues aren't your, your actual issues. But I'm wondering, have you ever had uh, documents lost in some sort of a, a situation like that? I have not had evidence lost like that, um, but I have, I do share her physical, pro she has a cerebral aneurysm, unruptured, she had uh, surgery for it, and she's fine, although she's having some issues with migraine headaches and the medications. I had a cerebral aneurysm, unruptured, and I did have the surgery, and it was, it was like no big deal, so I'm fine, but Tempe's having a little holdover. I figured if I had to go through that, she has to go through that. So. Well, and on that score, uh, she she is you, more or less. But I'm wondering if, as a writer, you've given her characteristics that you, you wish maybe you actually had, but you just have to sort of live vicariously through her. Well, yeah, she's a little braver than I am, I think. She does go out and pursue... Um, leads, I guess you'd say, which I don't. She becomes a lot more involved in an investigation than your typical forensic scientist would. We work in the lab. We, In my case, I work in the lab. I might go to a death scene to help in the recovery of human remains. Um, I testify in court, but I don't really go along with um, a Seely Booth or an Andrew Ryan in the investigation. You know, talking about characters in the book, one of my favorites is Tempe's mother, who's, I guess, pretty close to 80, if not 80 herself. But she's this uh, sort of Internet computer genius. And I'm like, how many 80-year-olds are like that? Not too many. Tell me, is she based yeah. on somebody actually or wishful she, thinking? Yeah, she's no, she's just a lot of fun, I think. Um, she's got her issues. Um, Daisy, she goes by Daisy. Uh as we, we get little hints about it from Tempe's childhood, her mother's probably what we'd call bipolar today. She's up, or whatever we're calling that today. She's up, had her ups and had her downs and had periods where she completely disappeared. But one time when she was um, at some sort of institution or rehab center, Tempe brought her a computer thinking, well, this will give her something to do. You know, it'll be a little hobby. Well, Daisy went nuts and loved it and took every course you could imagine and she's now more savvy than you know a 12 year old hacker would be so she's a big help to Tempe in in some situations she introduces in this book she introduces Tempe's heard of the dark web uh, but Daisy really introduces her to to the concept and and to the means to get down there and poke around in the book as you mentioned her boss uh, current boss uh, is not a nice person, uh, kind of a showboat to understate it. Uh, I'm wondering, I won't ask you if that's based on someone you actually know, because I don't want you to name names, but I'm wondering if that's a common in this field, that there are a lot of kind of showboats because of the nature of the work. I think, well, 
I have known some people like that. They have not been my boss, which is fortunate that I have had a, at least one colleague that uh, was toxic in the workplace. Um, I introduced uh, the idea that there was going to be a new boss in a, a short story, which was called First Bones. And it appeared two or three years ago in a book called The Bone Collection. And it's an origin story for Tempe. It explains how she came to be a forensic anthropologist, which is my origin story, because I didn't train to do that initially. Um, and in that story, we learned that her longtime forever boss in Charlotte is murdered. So as this book opens, there is now a new boss in town. And Tempe and Margot Hevner have history together, and uh, they do not get along. Tempe criticized this woman in the past, and this woman has never forgiven her. So she has vowed Tempe will never enter the Emmy office again. We were talking about some of the grislier details. Do you find yourself holding back sometimes when you're writing? Because I'm sure it could get even worse than it already is. Yeah, well, I don't. I wouldn't say I hold back, but what I will not do, because I think my readers read my stuff because they like the authenticity of it. They like to know what's going on at a crime scene, what's going on at an autopsy. What I will not do is put in anything just for grisly sensationalism. If it's there for a purpose to make the experience seem more real or to uh, move the story along, I'll put it in. But I'm not just going to throw in, you know, gory stuff just to make it more sensationalist. Yeah, do you have to kind of check yourself? I have friends who are doctors, and it seems like whenever the meal comes out at the restaurant, that's when we start hearing about Lansing boils and everything else. I'm sure you yeah, can go into a lot of things nobody wants to hear about. I, especially during the meetings, the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, there's something like 3,000 of us that get together, and forensic dentists and pathologists and anthropologists and forensic chemists. And anyway, we'll go out to dinner, and I'm told we have cleared entire restaurants because we're discussing cases and details, and people quietly pay their bill and leave. Well, I imagine there's probably some gallows humor in that in that uh, occupation as well. I've known a few funeral directors, and they seem to have the strangest sense of humor of anybody I've ever known does it supply in this field too yeah there is some dark humor in the autopsy room it's a tension releaser is what it is the only time there's no jokes at all is when it's a child when an autopsy is being done it's a child homicide or yeah how much of what drives a forensic anthropologist by quest for science as opposed to a quest for justice i think it's both um, I can't speak for everyone, but certainly that's what appeals to me. Um, giving the it's, it's a cliche, but cliches exist for a reason. Families want closure. They want answers. They may not like the answers, but they'd rather know than not know. So there is that satisfaction. There's a satisfaction if you can testify in court. Not everything I work on is criminal activity. In some cases, you know, an older person wanders into the woods and dies and two years later their bones are found, that kind of thing. But if it is a criminal and someone has uh, perpetrated violence against another human being, it's satisfying to be able to testify and be one part of the team that helps get that person off the street. So there's that. It's also um, solving the puzzle. And can you figure out looking, working on the bones and working backwards 
who was it or what happened to them. It's it's that puzzle. And I think it's a little bit of what appeals to the readers of, of thrillers and murder mysteries. Can you solve the puzzle before you get to the end of the book? Because the author, their job is to plant clues and some are legitimate and some are red herrings. And that's fair. Um, and your job as a reader is to sort through them and figure out the answer. And I know if I figure it out before I finish the book, I'm always a little disappointed in the author. So Well, yeah. I tried, had no luck. So it was a complete surprise to me. And there were plenty of red herrings. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Kathy Reichs about her latest book. And we'll hear about her writing process throughout her series of books. The way I write is each chapter is a separate file. So when I shut down at the end of the day, when I open up again the next day, or I start at the beginning of the chapter and I work my way through all the way to where I left off, editing, editing, editing as I go. So that's my process of working. So I know where the book's going, which doesn't mean I don't modify it in this feedback loop kind of situation as I'm writing it. That and some insight on writing for the television show Bones and her upcoming work when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. I was struck there's so much technology obviously involved in this field, but it seems like more often than not, the first thing that Tempe does is go to Google. Well, isn't that what we all do? You know, who is this guy, John Smith? And then you Google him. So she does. Um, she does Internet research, um, but she does a lot more than just that. In this case, for example, she collects suspicious bone samples that she hopes will be helpful. She does an analysis on those. And, of course, she does the analysis on everything she can get her hands on since she's barred from the actual body. Well, speaking of technology, I guess DNA has got to be the game changer in this profession. The, there's a lecture in the story where Tempe is telling um, Skinny Slidell, and Skinny is one of my favorite characters in Me the too. whole series. And she's telling Skinny that DNA can be used now for more than just comparison. You don't have to have a possible, a name, someone whose family you can go to for a sample. You can actually use DNA now for predictive, for figuring out what someone might have looked like, what racial background they might have had, what, you know, their eye color, hair color, major geographic area in which their ancestors uh, came from. So that's a big development in forensic science, in DNA in particular. And now this whole area of uh, forensic genetic genealogy is just blowing up. Is the DNA ever wrong? Do you, upon further research, find out that something you thought the DNA was telling you actually wasn't correct? Yes, that can happen, but I think in those cases, it's not the DNA that's wrong. It's the it's the uh, protocol that was used, or you know, operational error, as we might say. There is so much technology involved in this field now. Um, is is everything that you write about? Does it actually exist somewhere on the planet in this field, or have you made some things up? Oh no, for sure. I don't really. I don't make anything up, and that was true with the with the show as well. Now on television, we push the limits. Our, our 
in the writer's room, we would always say, well, is it plausible? Yeah, it's plausible. It's not likely, but it's plausible. So yes, the, what I use in the books, everything exists. Does the average lab have all of that technology and equipment and funding? Um, probably not, but it, 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 if I use it, it does exist. You were part of a procedural uh, television show. There are a lot of them out there now. People really are interested in this stuff. Um, does it also create this expectation that cases can always be solved? And, you know, the old Quincy, you've got 24 hours to solve this. Uh, is it sort of, a, I think you've heard, uh, talked about the CSI effect before. I think it does that. It, it definitely raises expectations. Um, and when I've testified in cases, you know, both opposing and defense, both sides, the counsel will probably say something to the jury about that and not to have overly high expectations of the technology. And also that in every case, you're not going to have DNA evidence. And I think maybe because of television, people, even if it's a fender bender, they expect DNA testing. I think it's good, though, in that the public has become much more aware of the power of science and aware of what forensic science is. When I started writing this series, I don't think anyone had ever heard of forensic anthropology. We just were working away in our labs and nobody paid any attention to us. And then all of a sudden, somewhere in, what, the mid-90s, we became hot and forensic science became very hot, very sexy. And you're right, it's on all over the place, books and even books that didn't in the past mention forensic science at least have to now give it passing recognition and that there's an autopsy or whatever. What, what, is, the, but, what is the attraction for the, the layperson to this? I mean, I, you know, Agatha Christie wrote mysteries for years, but, but it seems like you said that there is this new interest in this. I guess it's not quite well, so new just, anymore. Yeah, I think the difference, and what I write are, you know, murder mysteries. They're good old-fashioned murder mysteries. Somebody got killed, and then you got to figure out who did it and why. Murder is one of the few crimes you have to figure out motive. That's not true for robbery or, you know, kidnapping or what. Um, but the difference is uh, my stories are the solution is driven by science rather than gut instinct or good old fashioned police legwork or Agatha Christie type, you know, just intellectual intuition, that sort of thing. So why this new interest in doing it? And not everyone does it that way. There are still books being written like Agatha Christie type books, but um I don't know. People just became very, it, it, it's a feedback cycle, I think, because as people became interested, we began writing this kind of book. And as they read this book, they wanted more of them. And so it's a feedback loop. Is there a case you work that still haunts you? Oh, I guess the ones that don't get solved. Um, one of the kickoff points, I guess you'd say, for my 10th book, I think it was, Bones to Ashes, uh, was a case of this little child that was found on the border between Quebec and New Brunswick. Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a true case. It's, uh, that child is still in the lab up in Montreal. He's never been identified. He's never been, he or she, we think we, think we may have an ID, a little boy that was killed way back in the 60s. Long, complicated story, but his, it's never been identified, that little skeleton. Yeah, these cases really stay with you, I guess, long after they've been solved, and, and particularly when they haven't been solved. Particularly when they haven't been solved. Yeah. Um, zombie ants, are those real? 
<laughs> zombie ants are real. Um, I was re and as I, you know, I do an outline of the book and I know how it's going to flow, but I'm constantly reading. And if I read something as I'm writing a book, I, and it's really interesting to me, I think, whoa, I'm, that's going in. I'm going to work that in somehow. So that's where I had read this article about these zombie ants that the viruses, um, a particular virus, although now it turns out there's more than one, uh, invade the brains of these ants and then they can like robot control them into moving into environments favorable to the virus. So I thought that's that's pretty interesting. So something else we've got to worry about. Yes, <laughs> if yeah. We didn't have enough. Um, have you through the years kept sort of side notes other than the documents for the actual cases where you hear something or run across something while you're working on a case that, oh, that would be a good detail to include in a book someday. Well, I do have a file, a file folder called Future Stories, and it's not so much notes from cases I worked on as uh, clippings, things I read in, in the paper or uh, journal articles that I've read or presentations by colleagues at our national meetings, our professional meetings, I may jot down some notes from that. So I do have a folder of future ideas. That, and occasionally, usually I've got the idea for the next book before I finish the one I'm currently writing. So Is that the situation right now? Are you writing one right now? I am writing number 20. Um, I hope to finish it by the end of summer uh, for release next year around this time. And I'm already thinking ahead to number 21. So. How do you keep it all Very straight in your head? Well, yeah, sometimes I don't. Yeah. <laughs> do you always know where you're going? I mean, you always hear writers talk about they start writing and then the, the story kind of takes over itself autom like automatically. Well, you're the one at the keyboard. You have the delete key. I mean, you're in control. <laughs> Some days that happens. And then the, next, the way I write is each chapter is a separate file. So when I shut down at the end of the day, when I open up again the next day or whenever it is, I start at the beginning of the chapter and I work my way through all the way to where I left off. Um, editing, editing, editing as I go. So that's my process of working. I forget what, what question you just... So I know where the book's going, um, which doesn't mean I don't modify it in this feedback loop kind of situation as I'm writing it. Sometimes you surprise yourself, I guess. I think so, yeah. And if if one day I write something and I, I open it up the next day and look at it and think, what what was I thinking? You know, I'll, I'll, I, what I do is I cut it out and I put it in a dump file. I keep a file called dump. Uh, I never go back to the dump file. I've never in 19 books used anything, but it's like, you know, I wrote that. I'm going to just put it over there rather than just delete it. Yeah. Never spit in the trash can. Yeah. Yeah. Because this was a television series, we all sort of have a, a sense of who we think of when we think of Temperance Brennan. But if this book in particular was ever made into a movie, did you have anybody in mind for Slidell? Because he was probably, other than Temperance, my favorite character in the book. You got to love Skinny. Yes, there's an actor named Bruce McGill. Uh -huh. um, I don't know if you know Bruce. He's been in a billion things. You can Google him. <laughs> <laughs> he first, my first recollection of Bruce is way back in Animal House. He played D-Day, the guy that drove the motorcycle up the staircase. 
And then most recently, he was in Lincoln, the feature film, and he was also the cop on uh, Rizzolian Isles, the series based on um, Tess Gerritsen's books. I think Bruce would be great. All right. Well, we'll look forward to the casting of that. Have any of these been made into movies or discussion of making them into movies? No, because I optioned the character for the TV show. I optioned the character to 20th Century Fox. So, and I'm actually, and we were on air for 12 years. We're still the longest running scripted drama in the history of Fox. We're pretty proud of that. And we're still on, we're not in production anymore, but we're still on, I don't know where we are now, Hulu and uh, TNT and all over the place. So I don't actually know the legality of the character if I have the rights back, reverted back to me or not. That must be a strange feeling. Um, I should ask, shouldn't I? <laughs> I should ask. <laughs> Is she mine anymore? I don't know. Yeah. Just, <laughs> well, one last thing by way of wrapping up. Um, I, I'm wondering, does writing these books give you a, a satisfaction of always being able to solve a case when so often in real life that doesn't happen? Well, there is that. There is that. I mean, you do have 50 minutes in, in an episode or you do have 350 pages in a book and you do know that with one exception, there was one exception. Uh, I think it was my 10th book where the villain was not caught. And then, but that was the only time the puzzle was solved, but the villain got away. And then I was able to revisit that 10 books later, 10 years later, 10 books later. So, yeah, there is a, a satisfaction in being able to wrap everything up and boucle la boucle. I think it is the French, you know, buckle the buckle, the French phrase. Kathy Rex, thanks very much for the time. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye bye. That's forensic anthropologist, academic, and author Kathy Reichs on her work in and about the world of forensic anthropology and her most recent book, A Conspiracy of Bones, by publisher Scribner Books, when we spoke with her in June of 2020. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host, editor, and producer of the video version of this program was Paul Shankman. Graphics by Jane Ballou and Greg Kopp. The supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. HEC Media Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Paul Langdon. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Houle, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.